right now in the process of going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, it's been uh, great to walk with Jesus in this Gospel. By talking to you a little bit about the Giuliani Home Improvement Turning Point. You see, over this last week, we were able to finally get our basement. Now, you've got to remember, this is a 130-year-old house. Our basement emptied of over 20 years' worth of junk by Junk Rescue. They came and they actually filled one and three-quarter dumpster trucks of stuff from our basement. Um, this was a real turning point. We actually are now going to be able to get new walls, new surface on the walls, get new floors. Um, and uh, my brother, Ed Welsh, decided to take a tour down in our basement last week when we talked to him about it, and he said it was the most terrifying place he had ever been in. <laughs> So now it will no longer be a terrifying place. Um, and certainly for us, this is a turning point in the Giuliani home improvement of our 130-year-old house. Well, why would I mention something like that? Because today we're looking at a turning point. We're all familiar with turning points, right? There's turning points in history. There's turning points in relationships. There's turning points in... Um, different sporting events, uh, we, and we can go on, right? Um, in most of our lives, we've had uh, particular turning points. And a turning point is a time when there's been a change in a situation, and especially one with a beneficial result. Today's sermon text is Matthew 16 and 17, and it is a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus and in history itself. It starts with a question and ends with a revelation of glory. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Large crowds continued to follow him, but he was also facing more and more opposition from the religious leaders. He knew his time was getting short, and he needed time alone with the disciples. He needed to teach them. So he takes them 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, to a non-Jewish area where there would be no crowds. If you could put that map up just so I can show people. Okay, so that Galilee area is where he's been, but now you can see north of the Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, that's where he's at. So he's going out of that area, and no longer will he have to deal with crowds because they don't really know too much about Jesus at this point. And he really wants some time to be with his disciples to teach them because it's an important time in the ministry of Jesus. And so that's where we pick this up. Matthew 16, I'm going to read first, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the beginning of our readings today. Caesarea Philippi was known to be a region scattered with temples to ancient gods and a temple to Caesar himself. And it's sort of a, there was a large mount and all the temples were sort of right there. If you can put that picture up just so you can get an idea of that. This was the mount. And you can see there's all these temples, the shrine to Caesar, temple to Zeus, shrine to Pan, who's an ancient Syrian god, the dance floor for the sacred goats of other different things. So this is sort of the backdrop in which Jesus is going to ask this question about himself. It's almost as if he's deliberately set himself against the background of all the world's religions in all their history and all their splendor when he asks this question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, right? Some people thought he was a preacher of national repentance like John the Baptist. Uh, some thought he was a famous miracle worker like Elijah. And others thought he was someone who spoke the words of God like Jeremiah and the prophets. So Jesus listens to the disciples describe what they're hearing from other people. And then he says to them and asks them directly, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? They have been with Jesus now for three years. They've seen him perform miracles of healing. They've seen him deliver people from um, demons. They've seen him calm the storm. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him feed 5,000. They've heard him teach with wisdom and authority and also declare that he was the bread of heaven, the light of the world, that he was the good shepherd. And now he was asking, who do you say that I am? Can you feel the weight of this question? I believe the disciples did and they sensed that this was probably one of the weightiest questions, if not the weightiest question they would ever answer. And I believe there was a pause, and I believe they began to talk amongst one another. And then it's Peter who gets up. And Peter, by this time, you recognize that he is the leader. And he answers for all of them. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by answering this way, Peter and the disciples not only understood that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but he was also God himself. Think about that revelation. Jesus tells Peter that he spoke by divine inspiration. That this is not something that he could have just come to realization in himself. There had to be a divine revelation from God himself through his spirit. I love what Spurgeon says. Could you put that quote up? This also speaks to us of our need for a supernatural revelation of Jesus. If you know no more of Jesus than flesh and blood has revealed to you, it has brought you no more blessing 
than the conjectures of their age brought to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who remained an adulterous and unbelieving generation. You see, this revelation from God and proclamation from the lips of Peter is the turning point in all of history. That's how weighty a question is. It's the turning point in all of history. Jesus can now move forward with his mission of salvation and new creation. Jesus was waiting for this moment because it says in the scriptures that he then set his face towards Jerusalem after this happened. He needed them to know who he truly was. He needed that divine spirit coming in and opening up their hearts. And so the same question goes out to you and me today. Who do we say Jesus is? In your own heart. Is he Messiah the Christ? Is he God himself? Is he the promised Messiah? Has the Spirit confirmed that in you? What tells us in Romans 8 that it confirms in us that we can say Abba Father through the Spirit because we know that we're now adopted sons and daughters of the living God? Who do you say Jesus is? What is the Spirit confirming in your heart today? Because not only did it change history, but it changes our history. And what Jesus does as he begins moving forward now, he makes what I would say are new creation promises to Peter. Listen to what he says in Matthew 16, verses 13. Uh, in um, Where am I at? I'm sorry. Oh, so in continuing with the, uh, with the idea of what he's saying to them about overcoming. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, he's referring to Peter. See, to everybody, there's a lot of confusion around this, right? But I think he's referring to the confession. He's referring to the faith of Peter. It's the rock that he's building on. Peter's proclamation of who Jesus is because he is now the first stone of the whole church, but not the stone on which the church was founded. And Peter gives testimony to this in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6. We can read this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The foundation and the cornerstone is Christ. But the first living stone is the one who's proclaimed faith, the one who's made the confession, the first member of the Christ church moving forward. The first living stone is Peter who's proclaimed this. There is a new creation now with new hearts who are living stones forming a new spiritual house, which is Christ's church and Christ's kingdom. Hallelujah. This church and kingdom is indestructible. 
neither death nor all the powers of evil can overcome it because Jesus is the cornerstone and he has defeated death and risen from the death with new life. Hallelujah, Lord. When Jesus says he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, he's saying in the days to come, Peter will be the steward of the kingdom. He will be opening the door of the kingdom. This idea of the keys of the kingdom. Hey, somebody with keys can have a lot of power. Isn't that true? How about if I have a key that opens up a safety deposit box that have bars of gold in it? Do you think that is something that we would want? Opening it up. How about a key to a treasure? Hey, how about a key to a car when it's raining out? You see, keys are very important because they open doors. And that's the idea behind these keys of the kingdom. They're opening doors. What he is, is he become a steward of the kingdom. How, about he, how many of you have seen a facility manager walking around with just all these keys, right? You ever seen that? I love it, man. What's that key for? And they know what every key's for. And literally, they're the people you need to go to to open up the doors. In the same way... He's saying that Peter is a steward of the kingdom. He's given him the keys. And this becomes very clear at Pentecost, which we looked at last week. Peter, through his preaching, opened the door to the kingdom to 3,000 people at one time. He also opened the door to the Gentile Satorian in Acts 10. And at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, he opened up the door through his testimony to all the Gentiles, to all the world. See, this promise of Peter having the keys of the kingdom was the promise that Peter would be the first to open the door to God for thousands and thousands in the days to come. But it's not only Peter who has the keys. And this is something you need to know, right? Because this refutes a particular teaching, right? It's not only Peter who has the keys of the kingdom. Every believer, every living stone has the keys for it's open to every one of us to open the door of the kingdom to all people as we enter into these new creation promises of Jesus that we now can proclaim our faith and we can proclaim the good news. And as we do that, Doors are being opened up for others to come into the kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise God. And then there's this power of binding and loosing. And boy, I've been all over the place with this, and I'm sure you probably have too. But here's something you may want to think of. The Jewish rabbis of that day used it. They bound and loosed an individual on the application of a particular point of law. Jesus promises that Peter and the other apostles will be able to set the boundaries authoritatively for the new community, that they were going to build the foundation. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 speaks to this. Listen to this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This binding and loosing 
is this idea that these are the things that are good and this is written in the epistles and in the gospels and these are the things that you need to now watch out for. These are the things that will bind your conscience. These are the things that will bring oppression. And so that's what they're talking about in this binding and loosing. These are amazing promises, are they not? New creation promises. So... As Jesus moves on now, he wants to make his mission clear. He finally has the green light. He's ready to go. He's setting, his, he's setting his heart and mind and everything to Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross. And so now in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, he explains it to the disciples. He can't be any more clear. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. I could just see Peter doing that. I'm a lot like Jesus. I mean, Peter, sorry. <laughs> I wish I was a lot like Jesus, but I'm more like Peter. I can be very adamant, but you don't know that, right? Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So even though the disciples now know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's God himself, they've not understood his mission. Instinctively, they believe that Jesus will be bringing in a new earthly kingdom of power and glory for Israel. And nothing could be further from the truth. So now Jesus makes it perfectly clear. His mission is the way of the cross and resurrection. It is sacrifice and death ending in a resurrection to eternal life. How much more clear could Jesus be? But Peter, in his presumption, believes this isn't right. There is a sense that since God revealed the confession to Peter, that now Peter thinks God's revealing all things to him. So God told him this wasn't right. But Jesus made it clear, Peter, this is from Satan. There was a satanic purpose in Peter's words to discourage him from the mission, which was the cross. This was the same temptation Satan used in the wilderness and will use again in the Garden of Gethsemane. This type of thinking relied on the wisdom and mindset of humanity, not the mind and purposes of God. Brothers and sisters, can we not fall into the same mindset? God has purposes set before us, but we can rationalize them away. We can think God has told us something else. This really isn't for me. It's going to move you away from what God is calling you to. We can be very presumptuous about these things. And the Spirit would say to us, don't let Satan move you in this direction. So now Jesus is going to speak specifically to this mindset, to this way of life. Matthew 16, 24 to 28. These are some powerful words. Listen to this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. These are powerful words. Heart-searching words. And it's important to understand that when Jesus says deny themselves, he does not mean what is usually meant by self-denial. Sort of the idea of giving something up. You know, for Lent, a lot of people give something up. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's something they, you know, shouldn't be eating or whatever it is. But it's, it's not that. It's not this idea of self-denial. No, denying themselves means giving up the right to run our own lives. We are to deny that we own ourselves. And this strikes at the heart of our very existence because as human beings, we value and covet the right to make the final decisions in our lives, don't we? Paul describes what Jesus means in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Listen to these words. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now listen to these words. You are not your own. Excuse me? Have you really read that? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. The death of our Savior, the blood of Christ, was purchased us, and we are now His. Then honor God with your bodies. So we no longer belong to ourselves. Jesus has the ultimate right. He is Lord. He makes the decisions when the great issues of our lives hang in the balance. We are to deny our self-trust, our self-sufficiency, denying the feeling that we can handle life by ourselves. Have any of you gotten to that place yet? See, it's our pride that makes us independent of God. It's appealing to feel that we are the masters of our own lives. I can run my own life. I can call my own shots. I can go it alone. But that mindset is a lie. It's a lie. We have to get help from other people and cannot just rely on ourselves. Is that not true? But even more, we're dependent on God for our next breath. Excuse me. For our very next breath, we're dependent on God. It is nothing that we do. It's God. So if we think we can be God of our own lives, we are delusional. It is a lie. And this is what he's getting at as he talks about this idea of denying ourselves. Many years ago, when Barbara and I started going out, we were trying to clean up our lives. And we took a training called S-Training. Werner Erhard ran this training. You went for two weekends. And you literally spent 10 hours a day, 60 hours over those weekends, looking at how you were going to transform, taking personal accountability, and how you were going to be the instrument of the change in your life. So much so that one of the illustrations was, I could make every light that I was going to go to turn green. 
I love that because I hate traffic. And at the end of this time, you have to meet with the uh, people who are running it, and they asked you the question, did you get it? Did you get it? And I said, yeah, I got it. Well, what did you get? I'm God. Well, Barb was sitting next to me. I think she thought lightning was going to strike at that point. <laughs> but that's what I got out of it. I'm God. That's who I am. <laughs> yes. Certainly, I found out not too long after that when one of the red lights, uh, one of the lights turned red that I wasn't God. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that our lives are now his. And what better place for our lives to be in the hands of the one who is the creator of all things, the one who's loved us so much that he would die for us, the one who's going to come again in glory the one who calls us adopted sons and daughters. What better hands to be in? And so as we deny ourselves, it says, take up the cross. Take up the burden of sacrifice, a life of sacrificial service, living with an awareness of the needs of others. It's having the mind of Christ. It's described in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. What would the world be like right now if that was actually happening? It would be heaven, wouldn't it? But we can make a taste of heaven right here in doing that for one another. Ezra did a community project yesterday. When I got there, there was about 35 people working together to serve Cradle of Hope. In the context of that serving and thinking about others, all of us were stepping into the heart and pleasure of God, and you could feel it. There was something very significant about what was going on. This is taking up the cross. It's thinking about others rather than ourselves. And then he says, as a result of this, follow me. And this means basically obey. <laughs> it's choosing to do or say what the scripture calls us to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Forgive those who offend you. Bear one another's burdens. Freely you have received. Freely give. This is the way of life our Lord is setting before us. It's not easy. It goes against the natural tendencies of our hearts and will but when we walk with Jesus, he gives us the power through the work of the Spirit to live this new life. If you've had the revelation in your heart that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the lover of your soul, the one who's redeemed you from the pit, he's moved you out of darkness into light, then this is the way of life that he's not only called us to, but that he's more than glad to empower us to live. We need to come humbly and cry out to God. We need to look at these words and not run from them, but run to them. We need to cry out, Lord, not my will, but your will be done in my life. And as we do that, 
we will begin to be people who make eternal significance in this world through what we're doing. And so Jesus sort of ends this particular section with what the motive of this is. Here's the motive. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? I'm going after the whole world. It's all about me. I want all the pleasures. I want all the money. I want all the entertainment. I want everything I can get. And yes, you'll get it and you'll lose it. And if you ever talk to anybody who has a lot, when they get to a particular age, they begin to realize, but where is the significance in this? Where is the satisfaction in this life? It is empty. Because these things will pass away. But if you lose your life and serve as Jesus serves and look at others, you will gain it because you will one day walk with the living God in a place of glory. This is what he's talking about. There's an illustration, and um, if you want to do fact-checking on this, you can do it, but I'm going to use it anyway. There's an illustration that says that in the 8th and 9th century, there's a famous king, King Charlemagne of France. And he was buried in a very large tomb. And about a couple centuries later, archaeologists went to open up the tomb. And when we went to open up the tomb, they began to find all kinds of things sort of in the foyer of the tomb and everything. But when they got the center chamber, there was a throne. And there was a skeleton sitting on the throne which was Charlemagne. And that skeleton had a Bible holding a Bible, and the finger of the skeleton was pointing to a scripture verse. And what was the scripture verse? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That is one of the most powerful pictures. And I, I hope it's right. But I, I couldn't get away from not using that. It's, it's so powerful. It shows the reality. Even a great king with all of his treasures is someday going to be a skeleton and is his soul of more value than that life that he led. So praise God for that. So this amazing moment in Caesarea Philippi was followed by the great hour of the Mount of Transfiguration, a time of encouragement for both Jesus and the disciples. And this is where we want to end today. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them 
Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. See, this amazing event took place on Mount Hermon, which was north of Caesarea Philippi. And this word transfigure means transformation. The, the word there, the Greek word, is metaphor, metaphorphio, and it means a change of the inmost nature that may express itself outwardly. And sort of the idea, metamorphosis, we see it, children, uh, if you've worked with caterpillars turning into butterflies, it's the same type of principle. This is what transfiguration is. Jesus went up there in a human body, but he allowed then his divinity to shine forth, his glory to shine forth. It shined forth as bright as the sun. There's glory. Can you imagine? They were face to face with his glory. Moses saw it from the backside. They saw it face to face. If you could put that picture up just to get a sense of that. Sort of that idea. So there was Jesus taking off the flesh and, and just in his glory. And, and how amazing that Moses and Elijah appear and they talk with Jesus. Now, here's something about this that I love. It's great to know that saints long departed are still alive. Amen? They live in their own personalities. Amen? They're known by their names and enjoy access to Jesus. Hallelujah? Are we going to know people in heaven? We absolutely are. Are they going to be alive? They are. They're going to have their own personalities. Yes, they are. Hallelujah. This is great news. They represent the law and the prophets, the sum of Old Testament revelation, and they come to talk with Jesus about his upcoming work on the cross and resurrection. Why are they there? Why does Jesus need them? Why does he go to the mountain? He needs encouragement. He's feeling the weight of what he's doing. We see it again in Gethsemane. He's feeling the weight. And here comes Elijah, and here comes Moses, the law and the prophets, and they talk to him about his mission and encourage Jesus. And Peter, in the context of all this, doesn't know what to do. So what's he say? Let's build something. Let's build you three houses or something like that, right? But God interrupts him. God is gracious. He interrupts them, and he comes in the Shekinah glory cloud, the same cloud that led them in the wilderness, the same cloud that brought Jesus up into heaven. And what does he do? He speaks, and he says, This is my son whom I love, and I am pleased to listen to. Listen to him. Listen to him. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Redeemer. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He opens up the door to glory and resurrection life. He loves us and he's purchased us at a price. He has made us a new creation. We are living stones. We are built into a spiritual household. Hallelujah. We can live the way he's called us to live because he doesn't leave us alone, but because he is with us, leading us and guiding us that we will be the new creatures who live the way of the cross in a way that will open the door for others who will see, who will hear and respond. Hallelujah. Give God all the glory. Be encouraged. This is our Savior. This is the revelation that has been made to us. Thank you that we know who he is. 
and we can live in the way that Christ lived, that others might have the door open for them and no glory. Maybe it's time for you this week, today, ask the Spirit to check your heart. Do you really know this Jesus for who He is? Has that revelation touched your heart? And are you willing to give up your life, to give it to Jesus because He's purchased it for you? To know that it's not just, oh, I love Jesus, He's my insurance policy, thank you that when I die you're going to bring me into heaven, but I'll live the rest of my life the way I want. But no, I am your Savior, I bought you, your life is mine, now live it in a way that will bring glory to my name and blessing to others. May God help us in all of this, brothers and sisters. May we pray towards that end and encourage one another in that direction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning, and these are our powerful words, Lord. What an amazing revelation. It certainly changed all of history. And for each one of us individually, when we come to know that, it changes our history. We become new creations. We have a new future, a new purpose, a new way of living. Would you help us now, Holy Spirit, to recognize this, to desire this, to ask for the ability to do these things, to step into who we are in Christ Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow you, that the doors will be open for others. Thank you, Lord, that you give us purpose and eternal significance, more than we can even ask or imagine. Pour out your Spirit upon us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.